It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. Is there an alleged bias in extrapolation audits? That's our top story this morning, and with our exclusive report is Senior Healthcare Analyst Frank Cohen. He's standing by with his bombshell report. Also, on today's Monitor Monday, we're going to learn about the latest efforts to expedite the appeal process of the Office of Medicare Hearings and Appeals. Healthcare Attorney Andrew Walkler is standing by with that report. Healthcare Attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. J. Paul Spencer checks in with his Medicare Advantage report. And Monitor Monday National Correspondent Nicole Emanuel has the Auditor Monitor report and the Monitor Monday Listener Survey. Nancy Beckley's on assignment. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. First up today, it looks like CMS is going to once again be torturing home care agencies in several states with another attempt to reduce fraud. Last week, they announced they were going to start another demonstration project in Illinois, Texas, Ohio, North Carolina, and Florida. This program will be a 100% claim review process. Home health agencies will have the option of submitting the medical records prior to billing for the episode of care and getting approval to submit the claim, called prepayment review, or submitting the claim, getting paid, and then submitting the records, called, of course, postpayment review. It appears that those that do well after an unspecified number of reviews will no longer be required to submit records, except for the occasional, quote, spot check. But it's interesting. This is not actually a mandatory review process because agencies have the option of not submitting any records. If they choose that option, they'll get a 25% across-the-board payment reduction and are subject to audit by the recovery auditors. What is not clear from this proposal is if those agencies that choose to participate are immune from RAC audit, even if they do poorly on their claim reviews. How long the 100% review will go on before an agency is told they can stop? And most importantly, whether the unspecified contractor will be able to review all these claims in a timely manner because that's a whole lot of charts to review. So once again, lots of questions and very few answers. Second, I hope all of you read my Rack Monitor article on documenting and coding social determinants of health. And please listen tomorrow to Talk 10 Tuesday to hear Ellen Fink-Samnick discuss that further. But we're not the only ones discussing this. In last week's Health Affairs blog, the new proposals by many states to impose work requirements on Medicaid recipients was reviewed. And in that article, the authors point out that what the current administration is doing is usurping the concept of addressing our patients' social determinants of health as a tool for punitive action instead of a way to help improve their health. I won't go into details here, but I urge you all to go to the Health Affairs website and look at the blog entry from May 30th. No matter where your politics fall, you should object to this misappropriation of terminology. I also want to remind you of my upcoming webinar this week on the improper inpatient admission. For now, we're all still dependent on the physician to order inpatient admission on the appropriate patient at the appropriate time with an appropriate order. But it should surprise no one that this still does not always happen. 
So I'm going to go through all the scenarios of patients who are improperly admitted as inpatient, whether a fix is needed, and if so, how to fix it. And I promise you right now, I will only be mentioning the two midnight rule once, and that's only to state I will not be discussing it at all. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you very much, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now with the Auditor Monitor Report and the Monitor Monday Listeners Survey, here is Monitor Monday National Correspondent, Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning, and I'm so happy to be here today. I would like to talk about telehealth. Just a couple weeks ago, CMS unveiled its new rural health strategy in an effort to reduce hospital readmissions and unnecessary ER visits. Currently, there are significant barriers to telehealth. While physicians and providers have to answer to their respective health care board within the state for which they are licensed, if you provide telemedicine, you are accountable to follow the federal rules and regulations, of which there are many, and the rules and regulations of every state in which you provide services. For example, if a doctor resides in New York and provides medication management via telehealth to a patient in New Jersey, That physician must comply with all the rules and regulations of the federal government, New York, and New Jersey. Currently, 48 state medical boards, plus D.C., require that physicians engaging in telemedicine be licensed in the state in which the patient resides. Fifteen state boards issue a special purpose license to practice medicine across state lines to allow for the practice of telemedicine. As you can see, telehealth can leave hospitals and providers wondering whether they took a left at Albuquerque. The absolute leading barrier to providing and getting reimbursed for telehealth is the cross-state licensure issue. And according to CMS's new rural health strategy, CMS is seeking to reduce the administrative and financial burden of maneuvering the cross-state licensure issue. CMS also pinpoints two additional themes that they believe will increase the use of telehealth, improving reimbursement rates, adapting and improving quality measures and reporting, improving access to services and providers, improving service delivery and payment models, engaging consumers, recruiting, training, and retaining workforce, leveraging partnerships, and improving affordability and accessibility. What this new rural health strategy tells me as a healthcare attorney is the barriers currently to telehealth may soon come tumbling down. Obviously, CMS does not have the legal authority to change the Code of Federal Regulations, which now require that the telehealth physician be licensed in the state in which the patient resides. But with CMS tout, when it comes to Medicare and Medicaid, Congress may listen. Now today, we're going to have our Monitor Monday listener survey brought to you by our good friends at the American College of Physicians Advisors, ACPA. Here's the survey. Do you currently engage in telehealth, and are you confident that you are compliant with all applicable state and federal regulations? Yes, we provide telehealth and are confident in our regulatory compliance. No, we do not provide telehealth. Yes, we provide telehealth, but are not confident in our regulatory compliance. 
or yes, we provide telehealth and feel like we need to learn more about regulatory compliance. Thank you. We look forward to the results. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Nicole. That was Monitor Monday National Correspondent Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the Potomac Law Group, and as Nicole said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in the broadcast. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour, we're going to hear from David Glazer, J. Paul Spencer, Andrew Walkler, and Frank Cohen. This is Monday, it's June 4th, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Monitor Monday is brought to you today by Rack University, inviting you to attend an exclusive webcast by Dr. Ronald Hirsch this Thursday, June 7th. Dr. Hirsch will explain why confusion persists about patients who are improperly admitted as inpatients. But there is no confusion for auditors who continue to pounce on medical records to deny claims. In this exclusive Rack Monitor webcast, Dr. Hirsch will clear up the confusion once and for all. That is why this webcast is a must-see learning experience for helping your team avoid audits for improper inpatient admissions. Dr. Hirsch will review all the possible patient types and patient scenarios, including Medicare, Medicare Advantage, and commercial insurance. He will address circumstances prior to admission, during admission, and after discharge. To attend this Thursday's webcast, click on the Register button in the handout section of today's program, or visit the Rack University web store. Thank you, Clark Anthony. We're back. And just a reminder, you and your team can benefit from the latest compliance and regulatory educational webcasts from the industry's most knowledgeable experts. All these webcasts are now available through the Rack Monitor Handout Portal. All that's good news. Now let's check in with healthcare attorney David Glazer, who is reporting on some risky business. David, what could be risky this morning? Well, Chuck, two weeks ago, I indicated I would discuss how addictive drugs could improve your compliance process. No, I'm not suggesting that you ply people with crack or sedate them with Valium. I'm focused on a legal addictive drug, coffee. While I personally consume mine only in the form of ice cream, I've learned that some people, some of the most effective compliance professionals use coffee, tea, or hot chocolate as a means of developing a rapport with their team. So when I talk about the compliance team, I'm thinking about it in the broadest terms imaginable. I'm not just limiting it to people in the compliance office. Uh, obviously, the compliance team involves coders and billers, but it arguably includes everyone in the organization. And in a large organization, it's not realistic to have coffee with everyone, but you're going to want to spend time getting to know people who are most likely to identify problems. To be truly effective as a compliance professional, everyone needs to know who you are and needs to think of you as approachable. Now, when an employee has a compliance concern, they've got several options available to them. Often the easiest is to simply do nothing. That option is going to appear to offer little personal risk to the employee. Uh, the employee isn't going to get fired, no one's going to hate them, and the odds are that their life won't change much. A second option they've got is to become a, a quitam whistleblower and seek a pig, a, a pig payday. Uh, that might not work as well, but a, pig, a big payday might. Um, of course, that's not the way many people are going to want to roll. Personally, I'm not a fan of the way the False Claims Act works. I just think that the uh, financial incentive is all askew. So employees also have the option of picking up the phone and calling the OIG hotline. That option doesn't offer the same financial reward, but it allows the employee to remain in the weeds. So finally, they've got the option to come to compliance. Um, an effective compliance program is all about making that option the most palatable. 
And if we're talking pallets, that brings us back to the coffee ice cream. So coming to compliance has some risk. You might be ostracized. You might lose your job. You know, people could be mad at you. But if you trust the compliance department, it's the easiest and most natural approach. And this is where the coffee really comes in. You want reporting a compliance concern to be a natural extension of a pre-existing relationship. Now, I bet most of us have rolled our eyes and vented about a significant other's quirks in a discussion with a friend. Those conversations are natural and low stress. We want compliance conversations to be just like that. And the way to do that is to develop the relationship well before the individual has a compliance concern. The relationship actually starts with the rapport in the interview process. When you're hiring coders and billers, ask questions like, tell me about a time you thought a coworker was doing something improper. Or, when you're angry at someone, how do you handle it? Determine if the employee will have the sort of connection that will allow candid, unfettered communication. So the song this week comes from Squeeze. Now, to avoid becoming part of the Me Too movement, I'm not advocating you follow the song's advice literally. But in the metaphorical sense, offer your employees black coffee in bed. Next week, barring breaking news, I'll talk about Anthem's crackdown on emergency room visits and the things we can learn from it. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Fredrickson Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Here now with the latest news on the Medicare Advantage organizations is Monitor Monday National Correspondent Jay Paul Spencer. Good morning, Paul. What's up? Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. Well, as I enjoy black coffee at my desk rather than in bed, uh, I'd like to bring everyone's attention to a recent uh, purchase of a regional Medicare and Medicaid uh, HMO provider uh, here in the Midwest, Meridian, which has been had a big footprint in the states of Michigan and Illinois uh, for just about 20 years, have decided to sell to WellCare for $2.5 billion. Uh, It's listed as the biggest HMO deal in uh, Michigan history. But what I want to focus on are the reasons for the sale, because a lot of them are rather enlightening. As it stands right now, a large portion of the uh, Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act are still in place, the biggest one being Medicaid expansion. As Medicaid expanded in certain states, and uh, in this particular case in the states of Illinois and Michigan, it was found that uh, these small, uh, these smaller regional uh, Medicaid and Medicare HMO organizations now need a, quite a large infusion of cash to keep some of the uh, benefits and uh, uh, and health uh, benefits of their members solid as they go forward. Uh, Meridian being a family-owned company now has uh, uh, quite a problem with uh, cash flow, and they are going to need quite an infusion of cash in order to expand the services in the states that they uh, provide those Medicaid and Medicare services. Uh, Enter WellCare. Uh, who the owners, the family owners, the Cotton family of Meridian, uh, have known and worked with uh, in many cases for about 10 years. Uh, and, well, they believe that there is a mission between the two 
that will allow them to expand services that focus on the best benefits for the current beneficiaries under Meridian plans. The one thing that really struck me about this was the fact that these smaller organizations are going to need infusions of cash with PPACA in its current form. It's something to watch as we go forward. Uh, obviously, there are going to be states that have put in work requirements as part of some of the uh, organizational changes that have been put forward in the latest presidential administration and from the latest Congress. But it's something to watch for your smaller companies uh, that have had a large regional footprint as to whether they are going to have to follow the Meridian model and look for someone who's a little bit more uh, flush with cash and a little larger uh, to make certain that the, all of the needs of their beneficiary populations are covered. Uh, this one only this one affects uh, members in uh, 11 states uh, for Medicaid managed care and 18 states for Medicare Advantage. Uh, so it does have quite uh, the regional footprint. Obviously, in my part of the world here in the Midwest, it's much more prevalent that uh, uh, Meridian plans will be taken over by WellCare. But we'll see how this plays out over the next uh, few years as some of the needs of Medicaid managed care populations begin to expand. And with that, I'll throw it back to Chuck. Thanks, Paul, very much. That was Monitor Monday National Correspondent J. Paul Spencer. Paul is a senior healthcare consultant for Doctors Management. Paul, thanks for that report. We hope you're going to continue to report on that development. This morning, health care attorney Andrew Walkler is here to report on the long-awaited expansion of this settlement conference facilitation program. The news was released last week by the Office of Medicare Hearings and Appeals. Here now with details is Andrew Walkler. Good morning, Drew. Good morning, Chuck. Um, the opportunity to settle cases uh, continues uh, to expand. Um, just to let everyone know, if you're going with the low-volume a settlement, the 62% settlement, that must be filed by June 8th. This program will become eligible sometime in June, and we checked the website this morning. It is not updated as of uh, yet, but it's, uh, it's uh, quite open. If an appellant has 25 or more uh, eligible appeals at OMHA uh, and counsel, uh, then, then they can participate in this program. Or if they have less than 25, but at least one appeal is more than 9,000 in bill charges, they are eligible. Uh, that compared to the old program where you had to either have over 500 appeals, not 25, 500, or each appeal over $9,000. Um, you may not be eligible. A CMS will make a determination if there's false claims litigation or if they have other program integrity uh, concerns, including pending civil, criminal, or administrative uh, investigations. We still have uh, eligible claims are for those with a hearing request on or before November 3rd, uh, 2017. They must arise from Part A or Part B. Um, Part C and Part D is not eligible. Um, you uh, can look at the entire organization, um, a single uh, owner, 
and um, a hearing must not be scheduled. They've been somewhat flexible previously. If a hearing was scheduled, you could adjourn it and make it eligible. They've directed the judges not to adjourn or unschedule hearings. The total amount of claim must be under $100,000, but they do have an asterisk. They don't have a lot of explanation about this, but it says... Settlements of individual claims and extrapolated overpayment amounts between a hundred thousand and a million will be subject to U.S. Department of Justice approval. So they may be opening it up some on the um, uh, um, uh, the, the larger claims that are uh, statistically projected. Uh, further, if you're unlisted, unspecified, unclassified, or miscellaneous uh, claim. You not you will not be eligible, and it does not include appeals of payment disputes. A couple of things uh, before I end that are strategic considerations. There is an express um, lane, so to speak, where when you file for SCF, CMS, without doing any medical review, will give you a um, figure. And there's no guarantee you'll do better. Um, it, you could do worse. They're not looking at the medical review. Uh, I'm checking with CMS, but uh, right now I'd recommend you still submit a position paper uh, uh, initially to affect that uh, initial express offer. Uh, finally, um, I would say that um, if you do not accept the express offer, then you move to the full uh, settlement facilitation process where you get on the phone with CMS. And at this point, um, you pick claims and you want to submit your position on the medical review. So it's an open process. It's going to cover a lot if you want to use it. If you're not successful, you just go back in queue. So there's not really a, a downside. Um, and something I, I think everybody uh, can consider as part of their strategic approach to resolving these claims. With that, Chuck, I turn it back to you. Thanks, Drew, very much. That was healthcare attorney Andrew Walkler. Drew is a managing partner of Walkler and Associates, and you can read his in-depth reporting on the Settlement Contract Facilitation Program on our website at recmonitor.com. Our lead story this morning is about alleged bias in extrapolation audits. Reporting our top story this morning is senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen. Good morning, Frank. Frank, uh, in last Thursday's Rack Monitor News, you wrote, quote, literally billions of dollars a year are being extorted from healthcare providers due to a system of rules, regulations, and guidelines that are not outdated, but just plain wrong, end of quote. So what are you saying, Frank? Is the system flawed? Very flawed. I mean, look, there's two basic concepts involved in an extrapolation. You have to have a statistically valid random sample, and you have to meet criteria for what's called the central limit theorem. So to be random, it says that each unit has to be independent of each other, and it has to have an equal non-zero chance of being selected, say, from the universe. So to begin, this idea of independence is universal. If two units, uh, two claims, let's say, in the population are somehow correlated with each other, it can significantly bias any results. For example, sicker patients will see the physician more often, as such have more claims in the mix than healthier patients. So if I were to conduct a random selection of claims from the universe, the chances of selecting more claims from sick beneficiaries is greater than selecting claims from healthy beneficiaries. As such, you likely end up selecting multiple claims from the same sick beneficiary, which by definition means that those claims are no longer independent. So follow this logic. 
A sicker patient is likely to have more complex procedures in that claim, which translates to more dollars. So in this sense, by not controlling for independence, not only do you bias the results against the provider, but you violated the concept of randomness. As such, it's not a random sample. But, but do the auditors care? Nope. How come? Well, because the program integrity manual, which drives these audits, doesn't say anything about that being a problem. L- let me paraphrase the guidelines. A quote, even though our process of random selection violates the standards of statistical practice, too bad, so sad for you, unquote. That's my quote, by the way, not theirs. The central limit theorem is an axiomatic foundation behind referential statistics. Uh, the, the CLT says that you need to meet, one of the deals is you need to meet three criteria, basic criteria. The units are independent. We've already talked about that. That the data follow an approximately normal distribution, and the sample size has to be appropriate. It shouldn't exceed 10% of the universe. So I've already talked about this independence. But the other problem is that the data in healthcare are almost never normally distributed because the paid amounts are bound on the left by zero. Think about it. What's the minimum amount a provider can be paid? zero dollars. What's the most? Well, a lot more than zero dollars. So the data tend to be heavily skewed to the right. As such, um, the sample size selected by the auditors is almost always way too small. But what does the program integrity manual say about that? Well, section 8.4.4.3 says this, quote, a challenge to the validity of the sample that is sometimes made is that the particular sample size is too small to yield meaningful results. Such a challenge is without merit as it fails to take into account all of the other factors that are involved in the sample design. What a bunch of hooey. In fact, their sample size estimates are in direct conflict with one of their main mentioned references, a book written by Professor Cochran of Harvard University. It's called um, Sampling uh, uh, Techniques 3rd Edition. It absolutely contradicts many of the Program Integrity Manual guidelines, but apparently the government doesn't seem to care about that. So there are many other areas within the program integrity manual that contradict standards of statistical practice. And if you're about to go bankrupt, if you're about to bankrupt a small business based solely on statistics, then don't you think you should at least get it right? How much political capital does it take to right this type of wrong? Answer, obviously a lot more than what's currently available. And until it's fixed, we will continue to see the government impose undue financial burdens on our health care providers. According to... Edmund Burke, one of my favorite sayings, is that the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. It's about time we stop doing nothing. And Chuck, that's the world according to Frank. Thanks, Frank, very much. That was senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen. Frank is the director of analytics and business intelligence for Doctors Management, and you can read Frank's exclusive reporting on the alleged bias and extrapolation audits on our homepage at rackmonitor.com. Now it's the time for the results of our Monitor Money listener survey. Once again, here is Nicole Emanuel. Thank you, Chuck. Today's Monitor Monday listener survey is brought to you by our good friends at the American College of Physician Advisors, ACPA. And here are the results. 29% believe that you provide telehealth and are confident in regulatory compliance. 48% do not provide telehealth. 11% say you provide telehealth but are not confident in regulatory compliance, and 10%, yes, you provide telehealth and would like to learn more about regulatory compliance. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thanks, Nicole, very much. And David, let's take a look at some of the comments that are coming in. You bet, Chuck. I'm going to take this one in a slightly different direction. I want to tee something up for Nicole and for Drew. I've been spending a lot of time thinking about 
some of these telehealth questions. And I'm wondering about the constitutionality of a lot of the state requirements, because it's always struck me as a bit nuts that a doctor who's licensed in uh, California can't offer advice to a patient in Texas. As, as last time I checked, the medical principles in Texas weren't any different than they are in California. And I sort of wonder about the constitutionality of some of these restrictions. And so, Nicole and Drew, I wonder if you want to comment. If I have time, I'll opine at the end. I think there's a lot of gray area when it comes to the constitutionality of allowing telehealth across state lines. I mean, there are people who are going to say it's unconstitutional when you restrict the practice of medicine across state lines. Uh, however, the proponents of the uh, the proponents of the restrictions basically opine it to be the same as lawyers. I mean, if lawyers can't go across state lines, nor can physicians. South Carolina does not allow for optical telehealth, and and a lawsuit just that was claiming it was unconstitutional was just dismissed in South Carolina. So I think there's a lot of questions still up in the air. David, I'm, I'm not going to hold myself out as a state's rights constitutional expert, but a couple of observations. Um, uh, one, it's, it's, there's a component of it that's a traditional turf war, uh, war protecting your own uh, turf uh, uh, and, uh, and avoiding competition. But another is, is that uh, traditionally when you're licensed in a state, uh, you're subject to licensing requirements, you're subject to disciplinary uh, acts of that state, and I think uh, the answer is is going to be somewhere uh, in between, where you have kind of a special license that allows a practice in this area that subjects you to the disciplinary action and the laws of uh, of that state. I think we have to wrap up, but I'll just say there's a North Carolina teeth whitening case that we'll talk about maybe in two weeks. That's sort of an interesting one. And Chuck, I'll turn it back to you. Thanks very much, David, and thank you, Nicole, and thank you, Drew Walker, very much for that comment. We're going to continue to monitor that development. That's going to be a wrap for this edition of Monitor Monday. We thank you very much for being with us today, and a special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Frank Cohen, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, J. Paul Spencer, and Andrew Walker. And we thank you for being with us. We look forward to your being with us next Monday for another edition of Monitor Monday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you very much for being with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.